0: Welcome to Who's in STEM? I'm Ken Ono, your host and the STEM advisor to the provost and the Marvin Rosenblum Professor of Mathematics at UVA. Our goal is to evoke flights of imagination and wonder by showcasing this cornucopia of all that is STEM at UVA. The marvelous world of UVA science, technology, engineering and mathematics. It's been in the air. Today we're talking big data. And our guests are Phil Bourne, the colorful dean of UVA School of Data Science, and Kathy O'Neill, the effervescent data scientist and author of two best-selling books. Maybe you've heard of these books. They are really famous books: Weapons of Math Destruction, you heard that right, and The Shame Machine, Who Profits in the New Age of Humiliation? But first, Let's celebrate Who's making discoveries. UVA's eight-member cyber defense team won the Mid-Atlantic Regional of the Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition. They're mentored by computer science professor Yonggi Kwan, and they're captained by fourth-year Who, CS major, Emil Braggs. The team has advanced the national championships in Dallas, and what to say? Go Who's! UVA School of Medicine researchers have identified a gene that plays a crucial role in determining the risk of heart attacks, aneurysms, and coronary artery disease. Led by Professor Clint Miller, the discovery advances our understanding of the causes of a wide range of conditions, including arteriosclerosis, or the hardening of the arteries, and the idea is that this research will move us closer to new treatments and preventative measures. And that's... Who's making discoveries? As a kid in the 70s and 80s, I loved baseball. I saved up my allowance that my parents paid me in quarters, and I used these quarters to buy packs of baseball cards. Maybe you remember, there were 14 cards per pack, tightly wrapped in wax paper with a stick of stale bubblegum. My friends loved the glossy photos of the players, but me, I cared about the other side of the cards. That's where you found the numbers, the player stats, neatly organized in tables. What was there? Batting averages, home runs, triples, and I spent countless hours playing with these cards. Well, that's what I called play. You see, what I did is I'd randomly pick 20 cards, 20 players, and I made my own tables. I fashioned my own tables by picking the best season from each of the 20 or so players. And it certainly helped when I had stars like Reggie Jackson and Eddie Murray randomly come up when I picked the cards. What I did is I added up the numbers to see if I somehow fashioned, in my own way, a Hall of Fame player. And for me, that was the idea of big data, a ragged stack of baseball cards strapped together with a hefty rubber band. All I needed way back then was a pen, some paper, and my Radio Shack calculator. Let's fast forward to today, 2023. We have genuinely entered the era of big data, and it's a pleasure to have with us Phil Bourne, the founding dean of the School of Data Science, and Kathy O'Neill, a world-famous author, data scientist, and currently a UVA visiting scholar. Phil, Kathy, thank you for being with us. So, Phil, I'd like to start with you. What is, in your words, data science?
1: Well, it's an interesting question. If you, if you asked someone what the internet was, if you ask 10 people, you're going to get 10 answers. They're all going to be different, but you use it every day. And I would say data science is sort of the same thing, many different definitions, but you're using it every day. And you know, I'll pick a definition. There's the sort of standard definition and part statistics, part computer science, part applied math, all rolled together and applied to a whole series of different disciplines. That's one way of looking at it. The way we look about it and here at UVA and in the School of Data Science is really the idea that it's really, you mentioned big data already, it's about this ever-growing body of digital data from very many different fields that can be applied in many different ways. And when you bring that together, you, know, you can make new discoveries, and we're trying to make discoveries that have societal benefit.
0: Well, that's great. So, Phil, we're very lucky here at UVA. Big data is still quite new as a discipline. And you're the founding dean of UVA School of Data Science. We're lucky to have this school. This school is largely made possible thanks to a $120 million gift from the Quantitative Foundation headed by Joffrey and Merrill Woodruff. And everyone wants to know, how's it coming along?
1: (laughs) Well, you only got to look out, well, there's no window in the studio, but close by you can see a building that really is reflective of what we're doing. And so that's just part of it. I mean, I think if you really want to know what's going on, look in the eyes of the students. They'll tell you. It's quite stunning how it's coming together. So an example, we have an undergraduate minor program now that has 600 students in it, but across 70 majors, pretty much every single major in the university. So all these students want to have quant skills. You know, that's reflected in the undergraduate program we're just starting. And we also have a master's program, both residential and online. And now we have a PhD program, which is, you know, ever growing. So we had 250 applicants for that this year for probably about 10 slots. Mm. So I think that tells you something. And then there's an active research program. So it's, let's just say, it's very vibrant and growing.
0: Right. Data science, it's definitely in the air. And it's also on these T-shirts that populate grounds. So it's everywhere. So, Phil... Joining us today is Kathy O'Neill, celebrated author and data scientist. She's on grounds this week as a UVA Distinguished Visiting Scholar. As her host, I want to hear in your words, what brings her here to UVA and what does she add? Well, I think Kathy's exemplary for
1: what we would frankly love all our students to become in some way, shape or form. I mean, the fact that she has such a distinguished career as a mathematician, but then also has really got a breadth in terms of working in the private sector, for example. And then, of course, what we really care about, and I think it's, for us, going to be perhaps the biggest driver of what we do, is what I would just call this area, large area of responsible data science that Cathy exemplifies so well and has worked so hard towards, and it's
0: really contributing in ways where people pay attention. Right, I want to add to that, as the STEM advisor, we here at UVA are quite proud of our initiatives in democracy. So you heard it from Phil. This is how science, data science, plays an important role in everything we are at UVA. Kathy, known you a long time. Yeah. So I kind of want to admit this. <laughs> so I first learned about you in the early 1990s when our producers weren't alive yet. <laughs> I first heard about you from my friend, Ken Ribbett, professor, a very distinguished professor at Berkeley. And he had told me you had just won the Schaefer Prize awarded by the Association for Women in Mathematics as the top undergraduate woman in mathematics in the country. You then went on to Harvard, where you wrote a PhD in arithmetic geometry on Jacobians of curves. And as this is my field, I can tell the listeners that this is really abstract stuff. It's uber-theoretical, it's way out there. And today, you're a world leader in data science. Your website, Math Babe, has a huge following, Honestly, when Math Babe talks, people listen. How do you go from the world of abstract math to where
2: you are today? First of all, thanks for inviting me today. It's a pleasure to be here. I guess the answer is I made a lot of mistakes, but I try to learn from my mistakes. So that's the short answer. I'll then expand that a little bit. I went into finance during the financial crisis or right before the financial crisis. I learned pretty quickly what I don't want to do with my life, which is stay in finance, especially because I thought that mathematical models and the unreasonable trust that they were imbued with were part of why we had a housing bubble and a financial crisis. So it was like not great.
0: Right. So if I remember correctly, you were part of the Occupy Wall Street.
2: Yes. Yeah. So So once I quit finance, I joined Occupy. But actually, I started Math Babe first as an attempt to basically warn off other mathematicians from the route I had taken into finance. Then Occupy started, and I joined it. I needed a job though, so I took a job as a data scientist in ad tech in New York City. And I pretty quickly was like, "Oh wait, I don't, I don't want to be part of this either." You know, the funny thing is, as a mathematician, you're like, you know, your biggest problem is that no one cares about your work, and it's very <laughs> slow going. It's beautiful, it's absolutely gorgeous, but it's like not that fundamentally transformative of society. And so I remember leaving math, thinking I want to have an impact on the world. And after a couple go rounds in in the real world, I was like, actually, I want to have a positive impact on the world. And that's an important caveat. So after having left ad tech, I started researching weapons of mass destruction because I was like, okay, I keep seeing the same thing happen over and over again, which is people trust math algorithms too much. We give them too much power, and they actually aren't that perfect. And in fact, they're imperfect in systematic ways that typically make lucky people luckier and unlucky people unluckier. So they're sexist, they're classist, they're racist. And that's should be expected because that's what we are as a society. So I started really digging into those questions of like, why do we trust things that are so imperfect? What is the marketing aspect of this? What is the narrative in the media? It really shifted my thinking about my life. I'd certainly identified as a mathematician and as a technical person until then. And I now think of myself much more as a translator. But I still have technical skills. So when my book came out, I also started an algorithmic auditing company, knowing full well that there was no such thing as algorithmic auditing. You call
0: it ORCA, is yes. Right? right.
2: Orca is the name We're of my company. We're supposed to be afraid
0: of orcas, aren't we? They're, yeah, they're, they're killers. I
2: hope, they, I hope people are a little afraid well, good. of my company. Yeah. <laughs> it's supposed to be a little bit. It's a little daunting. Yeah. The idea is, you know, like algorithms aren't perfect. If you're courageous, you'll let us look inside the system to see what's what's actually happening.
0: And how often does that happen?
2: You know, I'm getting more and more clients along the lines of the attorneys general. Um, (laughs) I do. I work with the insurance commissioner of Colorado as well as the insurance commissioner of D.C. So, yeah, we're getting more and more interested in like regulatory and policing functions, which is fine. The larger goal of ORCA and for myself personally is to set standards in this field. And I'll just I'll just say one more thing about my time in finance, which is like one of the things that went so wrong with mortgage-backed securities and those AAA ratings of mortgage-backed securities is that the system of risk modeling was corrupted. And so we were expected to trust these things because they were built by mathematicians with PhDs, but they weren't actually trustworthy. They were mathematical lies. So how do we build an auditing function in the world of algorithms, given how high the stakes are? That is not just a bunch of mathematical lies.
0: Mm. Yeah, I'd like to, to follow up a bit on this. Here at UVA, Ian and President Ryan, uh, they strongly support, as I mentioned earlier, this democracy initiative. And I'm a huge fan of your book, Weapons of Math Destruction. By the way, I gave 60 copies out last year at the graduation dinner, which we hold every year in the beautiful dome room of the Rotunda. And I won't be surprised if you get spotted on grounds and people that might ask you for That actually happened already. It was, oh, it already happened? Yeah, it was pretty cool. Oh, awesome, yeah, I felt, awesome.
2: I felt really, really special. Okay. So thank you for doing that.
0: Oh, well, thank you for writing the book. For our listeners, though, I think if you could... Share with us one anecdote that really troubles you, say, in the world of predictive policing, which is so important to us here. What would that takeaway and worry be that you would want to raise awareness of?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. I could talk for an hour about that stuff. Yeah. Um, but I would say the alarming thing about using data that the police have, <laughs> you see, I'm very, <laughs> being very careful with my words, not, I'm not calling it crime data is that it's not crime data. It's it's called crime data, but it's not crime data, which is typical in this arena. We bestow powers or assignations onto these data sets that they just don't have. We right. project. So we look at arrest data and we call it crime data. And the reason that's really a problem is because we think arrest data is going to be predictive of crime. But actually, crime is very different from arrests. If you think about murders where you know there was a victim, you know there was a crime, I should say, but most of the time you have a dead body and you're like, okay, there was definitely a crime here. Even then, it only 56% of the time leads to an arrest, and less than 50% if it's the victim is Black. If you think about rape, hugely underreported, hugely underreported, and depending on the politics and the trust of the police, even more underreported. And then when reported, only leads to an arrest 7% of the time. Really? Yes. So if you think about the incidents of crime on the one hand and the arrest data on the other hand, you're like, whoa, those are really different. So the idea of calling it crime data and saying the locations of previous crimes is where we should send the police, what that actually leads to is the continued pattern of over-policing of the na- same neighborhoods that have been over historically. And for that matter, like the continued criminalization of poverty, of mental health problems and of addiction, which arguably shouldn't be crimes. I could say a lot more about it. I'll stop there. But I guess the biggest thing I would say here is that we call it crime data. That's our bad. Like the algorithm is doing a good job predicting, but it's not predicting crime. It's predicting police. Right. It's doing a pretty good job at predicting police.
0: Well, thank you, Weapons of Math Destruction. If you don't own it, I invite you to check out a library or purchase it online. It's really one of the most important books, I think, ever written in data science. Now, Kathy, last year you followed up with another bestseller called The Shame Machine, Who Profits in the New Era of Humiliation. What's this book about and what are the takeaways?
2: Well, the book is about my sort of profound interest in shame. So there's a lot of personal narrative there about fat shaming and my my decision to get bariatric surgery in order to avoid diabetes and how like it was an absolutely shaming experience, set up essentially in order for insurance companies to avoid paying for bariatric mm. surgery, even though it's really, really good for people's health in the long term. But insurance companies typically don't care about the long term. So basically, I'm trying to understand the extent to which we as a culture are shamed by companies For profit. Now, that's actually kind of old news when it comes to things like face cream. Like, we know that women are shamed for being old so that they'll buy face cream. That's a standard thing, it's not new. One of the things that I thought through, though, is like the extent to which social media has sort of captured this exact notion, but it's twisted it a little bit. Whereas a company like a face cream company will shame us directly in order for us to sort of try to escape that shame by purchasing a product. Social media companies have figured out something trickier, which is that they get us to shame each other and they stand by while they profit off our clicking on their ads, which of course the ads themselves are also part of the shame machine. It's a devious way of profiting off of our shame and it's probably even more problematic because at the end of the day we are cooperating with it. We're actually we're part active of participants. Yeah. Right. We're part of right. the machine. Yeah. So that's that's really what I want to get to talk to people about. I also obviously think through when is shame appropriate versus inappropriate, because uh, to be clear, going back to Occupy Wall Street, every protest movement is shame based. Right. right? We're right. always shame, but it's punching up shame. Right. So I try to do a taxonomy there of like, what's punching up versus punching down, which is, in other words, when is it appropriate to use shame? When is it inappropriate or unuseful?
0: Very compelling. Well. In addition to all of these sobering messages, there's another elephant in the room. So I want to turn back to you, Phil. So the elephant in the room is artificial intelligence, large language models, ChatGPT, Jasper, and so on. So Phil, as one of the leading figures in higher education, one of the deans here at UVA, can you speak to that? What's your vision of the future of higher education?
1: Well, as you know, that the university has a task force going on at the moment, just looking at ChatGPT and all these other large language models and the implications of it. I mean, I think we're all of a general mind that this is actually overall a positive thing. I mean, notwithstanding all the issues that Kathy's brought up, which are actually going to appear in droves, because remember, text which is being consumed by these kind of models is in fact just another form of data. So that's all happening. But I'm overall, I'm optimistic that we're embracing these capabilities as tools that could be used to further the missions I described before, which relate to the betterment of society. So that's gonna happen over the long term. I think it's going to be very disruptive for higher education. We've had two Dean's meetings about ChatGPT. I could not get the Dean's attention about AI before this. So it tells you something fundamentally is new. And I think it, frankly, it has to do with the generative aspect, which suddenly people see before their eyes that something that's not a human being is generating language, code, recipes, all sorts of things that, you know, has disquieted people, but at the same time got their attention. So I think that will be a disruptor going forward, how we think about higher ed. I could tell you a little story I told the deans to just sort of exemplify that. So... Basic notion, and it also, of course, relates to, you know, what looms over us all the time, which is Thomas Jefferson. So imagine a situation where you you could go, right now we have collections of Thomas Jefferson's papers that no one else has. Some of that's digitized, some not. When you digitize all of that material, everything he wrote, you could actually create very easily, automatically, a timeline of and social network of Thomas Jefferson over his lifetime. So who he interact with at certain time points and so forth. So imagine picking a point on that, you're wearing a virtual headset, you pick on a point in that scenario where it's the laying of the cornerstone of the University of Virginia. And who's there, Madison and Monroe are there. Well, then you have a simulated conversation between the three founders as it may have existed, or at least as far as these algorithms are telling you it existed at the time. And then of course, in in a VR world, you can actually look at what the surroundings look like at the point of the laying of the cornerstone before the academical village was built around Pavilion 7 and so forth. So imagine just learning history that way, that suddenly, you know, with all of those sort of capabilities, for better or worse, and there's some worse in there as well in terms of misinterpretation of that conversation, but it's going to be a compelling way to learn. And it's not the way we're even thinking about learning right now.
0: That vision is fascinating. As a mathematician, a man of numbers, what I would like to see would be this famous correspondence between Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Banneker, first African-American scientist who really should be much more of a household name. And Jefferson's relationship with Banneker's is one that needs to be developed further. But you've just yeah. described yeah. Where,
1: where the promise is, right? right? I mean, there's certainly aspects that are problematic. But the idea is that – so what's problematic? That suddenly a lot of people who are working in the in higher ed in the way they've worked for a long time, they're not going to have jobs anymore. On the other hand, this kind of ability is going to open up a whole new set of types of jobs. And we've seen this over history time and time again. And I, I just see it repeating itself here. And I think there's the opportunity if done – Cathy wants to yeah. jump in here. Yeah. You know, that's good. Um, you know, it's just an opportunity that um, – but there are – And maybe this is your lead-in, but there are worrying parts of this as well.
2: No, I mean, actually, not going to talk about worrying parts, which there are, of course. But I'm just saying that what I'm seeing you do is use your human intelligence to apply it to a, a tool, which is based on training of all the content that humans have generously contributed to the Internet in order to do a lesson. But this is all you. This is all humans. Right. I mean, I just making the point that it's like not actually that new. Can your idea of thinking through that conversation between the scientists and like, that's a good idea, but that's your idea. Right. I guess my my thing about this generative AI stuff is that they don't come up with original ideas. They do help us build on original ideas but it's just a tool. I do agree that it's going to fundamentally change higher ed, but not because of learning being different. Learning is not going to be that different. It's going to be aided by this tool. What's going to be different is grading, you know, especially with essays. And with college admissions, it's going to be harder for people. It's going to basically democratize cheating, which <laughs> I think I'm kind of all for. It shouldn't be only Rich kids with tutors that get to cheat. You know what I mean. <laughs> so I think I think it's it's going to be challenging for English professors or other professors who take in essays to be like, is this is this original, or to what extent is this original? Are there original ideas? But I actually think a long term that's a good thing. Like the pitter patter is stuff that obviously a computer can do. So the the question is going to be, what is the original idea here, and that will never. Be done by AI.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. But I think we also agree that AI today represents, as you say, an incredible tool where we have at our fingertips extraordinary access to essentially accumulated human knowledge
2: and hate speech.
0: And hate speech, right. We do have to wrap up here. I'm sure we could talk for hours. Maybe we'll do it at a coffee shop later today. But thank you for being here, both of you, Phil, Kathy. You're both shining examples of what it means to be great and good in all that we do. Phil, thank you for your dedication and service to UVA. That direction is so important as we enter the era of big data. And Kathy, wow, what to say. Thank you for being a strong advocate and a voice of much needed reason. Hope you enjoy your time here as UVA Distinguished Scholar. Come back anytime. I'm Ken Ono, STEM advisor to the provost and the Marvin Rosenblum Professor of Mathematics, and you've been listening to Who's in STEM.
1: Who's in STEM is a production of WTJU 91.1 FM in the office of the provost at the University of Virginia. Who's in STEM is produced by Catherine Kosabum, Rhea Verma, Mary Garner-McGee, and Ariane Ballou. Our music is composed and performed by Robert Schneider and John Ferguson of Apples and Stereo. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Listen and subscribe to Who's in STEM on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with another conversation about scientific and technological innovation at the university.